Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, today I'm joined by Dan Glass, the award-winning human rights campaigner, writer, and performer. With a visionary, community-based approach that weaves connections between groups that are marginalized in society, Dan's work seeks to raise critical consciousness and creativity so people can read their reality and write their own history. According to Dan, activism is simply acting upon what you care about and cultivating curiosity we have about ourselves and the world at large. It's with this candy spirit that he's led campaigns for climate justice, LGBTQIA rights, HIV awareness, and much, much more. With his exuberant passion for change, which has been described as matched only by the depth of his rage and the warmth of his intellect. Dan, welcome to Changemakers. Oh, thank you, Michael. You're really fascinating, I think. <laughs> Let's start with the rage and the warmth. <laughs> Where's, tell, give us a sense of, introduce yourself to us in terms of that, that exuberant passion, the depth and the warmth, the kind of the person that I'm interviewing today. Yeah, I guess it's quite ordinary in the sense of where I come from and and what I do in my daily reality. As I said, my favourite TV programme is EastEnders. So I don't have a very like extraordinary background. I, I guess what where where the depth comes from, and it sounds a bit depressing, but it can lead us to great things, is from my nan, who was a Holocaust survivor. Mm. She's not with us physically anymore, but her, her lessons always taught me a lot about how bad things can go. And therefore, if you have the opportunity, you know, she was Jewish as I am, and so she saw the Warsaw ghetto burn down and was an undercover nanny and a, a nanny as an undercover Jew in a Nazi household and all kinds of horrific uh. things. She survived and, and it's about the the potential for survival and solidarity and compassion when things get really bad. Um, so once you see how bad things go, you can also see how how great things can be as well. What did uh, she say? What did she say to you, Dan? I mean, was there a kind of do you remember the advice she gave to you growing up? Because quite often, you know, you know, you you you're very influenced. I mean, and especially influenced by somebody who's gone through that kind of 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 life experience. I mean, do you remember the sort of things she said to you? Oh my God, we don't have long enough. I guess the main story I always remember is about her liberation and when she didn't think she thought all her biological family was dead because they all got separated and then she just remembered so vividly the day where she got reunited with them and for me that's about hope and perseverance even when you just don't know how bad the situation is hope and perseverance I guess the other thing I got from my nan she had a wicked sense of humour she always just went into fits of laughter and I think that's a spirit of survival Mm. that we have the, I mean, everything that she went through, she still was really great at cracking a joke. And and for me, having a sense of humour, and, and that has parallels with creativity and wit and self-deprecation and not taking yourself too seriously, is is survival. And well, because well, because wit is a talent, right, isn't it, as well? I mean, it's something that, you know, it can help bring people together. It can help build trust. I mean, it's. I've often thought it's, it, it's underestimated as one of life's greatest gifts. Mm. Big time, big time. And I think what's the my my one of my favorite quotes is the Maya Angelou quote where something like change is not about what you've done, but how you make people feel. Mm. Meet a lot of people who've done lots of incredible things, but they're not very nice. And it's always about the, the warmth that you can you can exude on a daily basis. Because I knew when I was just getting involved in activism and social change, I was I was pretty clueless. And people took me under their wing and and showed me the different visions and utopias that we can create in the world. 
So mm. that's what I try and try and do on a kind of personal level and a mentoring level. Right. Because I suppose, and, and I suppose that ticks off the warmth, right, in terms of you as a person. And it comes across, you feel, you know, you feel the positive energy. But but what I know, because I've, I've read what you've spoken about, is that there is also underneath that, or, or not even underneath it, alongside that, perhaps, this kind of like this intense rage the indignation and and that that is about power systems in terms of the way that we that we all live our lives tell us a little bit about that and about i suppose your beef with the status quo god yeah i mean look at the news last night with what happened at the christmas party at 10 downing street we've now time stamped the interview (laughs) i guess with the love and the rage i keep going back to the holocaust but we learn from these things right we can't as the saying goes never again ever yes the nazi holocaust might not be happening now but the infrastructure that enabled it still exists Mm. such as the arms the illegal weapons industry for example or if we're looking at profit over people when it comes to massive environmental crimes, which are causing all manner of problems. So there's a difference between injustice and structural injustice, and it's being very aware of that. And I'm also very much inspired by Hannah Arendt's work on the banality of evil, that we always have to be aware and conscious of oppression, otherwise we'll easily step into the shoes of the oppressor. Mm. That sounds quite deep and heavy, but you can do that with creativity and joy and 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 love. Yeah, but but I suppose you know that that quote underpins, I suppose, why you are an activist because you've seen things through your own life experience, through the lens of your own life that you care about. You've seen things that you want to act upon was there a tipping point moment for you where I guess the lights went on in terms of maybe I'm going to travel a path that might be different than the one you had originally expected I mean what 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 was the what was there a moment or was it a kind of a consciousness exercise that came over time when I got diagnosed with HIV 16 years ago because obviously it was World AIDS Day last week a week yeah, December the first. So I was diagnosed when I was 21 or 22, and slap in the face, mm. slap in the face. And uh, you know, my nan, I still, if she was alive, maybe I'd still be a nice Jewish boy in her eyes, but with a lot, a lot of other aspects as well. I didn't know, nearly swore, I didn't know next to nothing about HIV when I was diagnosed. And it really, like, my face was slammed against the window. Was this at the point of diagnosis? I mean, was there, I mean, I'm just sort of trying to, to bring to life the moment, to, to capture that that moment, that snapshot, probably that snapshot in your mind about when it all changed. Talk us through that. Yeah, well, when my doctor told me about HIV and my frame of reference, if anyone grew up in the 90s or the noughties, it's the, in Britain, it's the tombstones falling on the te- on the telly or Mark Fowler getting shouted at by everyone in EastEnders. I didn't have, have much knowledge whatsoever. And then I read a lot about it, realised the gravity of it. And obviously, fast forward and 36 million people in the world yeah. are still living with HIV and AIDS. A million, over a million got diagnosed last year alone. And you learn about power, you learn about powerlessness. You learn about pharmaceutical greed and government inaction and the millions of people who died slash murdered who shouldn't have been because mm. not having access to healthcare. So your your lens of the world goes from very small to huge when it comes to how the world operates and that life is short. Right. And- 
we've got medication now, but still, you know, there are many people that don't have it. Do you think that? Do you think that sense of of mortality spurred you on to start getting things done? Do you think? And actually, this has got a connection between the creativity and the drink. Before I was on medication, I noticed when I got stressed, I got um, red rashes on my arm. Um, obviously, because HIV is a stress-related condition. Mm-hmm. I got red rashes on my arm and white things on my tongue, and so I immediately knew the correlation between stress and my immune system. And therefore, I had to organise my life so I didn't get stressed. Easier said than done. And uh, so there's probably a lot of listeners that are asking, "Well, how do you do that?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, well, it's it's a lot of a kind of spiritual quest, really. To, mm. you know, with Boris Johnson last night, am I going to get angry and raging, or am I going to try and see oh, another way to deal with it? So I knew I couldn't get stressed. So I knew that there had to be, for my own physiological well-being, another way to deal with the rage, deal with the fire of the injustice, because I didn't want personally to ill. And was that action? I mean, you know, was because you've described activism as simply acting upon what you care about, right? And and cultivating curiosity we have about ourselves and the world at large. That also must make you feel better, doesn't it? You must feel like you're there's a sense of equilibrium and a sense of, you know, reckoning with yourself that actually you're not standing back, you're actually stepping forward. Definitely, definitely. And then, and, you know, you know, you could be a far right activist, you could be a xenophobic activist. Activism activating on what you care about but for me transformation and the learnings that i've had which are a lot from anti-apartheid activism Mm -hmm. is transformation is for the greater common good it must result in radical social change radical roots being the etymology of radical and it must lead to mass transformation for everyone so that's the difference between being a part yeah and and i suppose the thing about activism is i mean you're right to to point out that the the very wide spectrum of of people that 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 choose to act but i suppose you've also spoken about you know i I thought really lovely phrase actually the fog of collective amnesia right that actually you know there, there are a lot of things that that keep people you know, away from activism, not even thinking about it or addressing it. I suppose you see that as a structural thing, right? That actually there are things that that manipulate people and keep them in the system. When you hear about, you know, sort of these, these new movements like conscious capitalism, business as a force for good, B corporations, people that are trying to use the system. I mean, or or as you call it, the ashes of capitalism, let's call it, right? You know, that people are trying to actually do things with the existing set of, of, of tools available. How do you rate that? How do you, what, what's your view about what can be done under the way things currently are? I mean, I respect anyone who's got integrity with trying to act upon social change for the greater common good. I'm also very fundamentally um, principled with that capitalism in, is not going to work because it's about profit over people fundamentally. Mm. So that system has got to change. But I am, you know, I am respectful of people who want to make change, but not in a tokenistic way. Um, you know, one thing I've learned from the HIV activist history is what's called the inside outside strategy where you have that grassroots activist doing civil disobedience on the ground, and then you have the scientists, the research, the policies, in, policy makers inside, and there's a system of reciprocity, but it all must be done in balance with the greater context at hand, socially, environmentally, racially, etc. When we talk about, I think one thing that's really, I found super empowering is learning from our elders, ancestors, people who came before us, mm-hmm. who thought that things might be impossible. If you look at the underground resistance movements in the Nazi Holocaust who saved my name, if you look at the anti-apartheid activists, if you look at LGBT activists who I've got tattooed on my arm. because I can see. It's, they're there. 
Our listeners are going to have to take my word for it. Or if you look at the HIV activists whose friends were dying every week who didn't think there would be access to medication and who fought tooth and nail and won access to medication, often it feels like there's no end in sight. But you have to keep persevering and you have to be critical as the wider context and be strategic. Mm. But I suppose, you know, and people will be listening and say, well, look, I get the nature that, that change can at first seem impossible, improbable, unlikely, and that things can can happen. The examples that you give are through, I suppose, the extreme lens of the Holocaust, of armed struggle. And a lot of people that will be listening will say, well, look, okay, I get that I don't like, you know, I interviewed Yanis Varoufakis. He talks about techno-feudalism, right? That, you know, and he's, his big enemy was was Amazon, right? You know, Jeff Bezos. And But I suppose in, in his mind was that he thought that somebody like Jeff Bezos was a very smart man, but he wasn't channeled properly. You know, that actually those talents were... What it kind of feels like listening to you, Dan, is that there's kind of like... For somebody to win, somebody must lose. It's almost like you know, the, 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 for the oppressed to for the oppressed to have reckoning, the oppressor must be must be confronted. I mean, is there a lesson to progressive leaders that listen to an interview like this and think, well, look, I've you know, I've seen civil demonstrations and marches through summers. We want to we want to change. You know, for, for the idea of profit and people, we want to say, well, profit and our purpose leads to better things for people. Or 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 is it the case that you know, regime change? I suppose is is the only answer for somebody that sees life through the lens that you're looking at it. No, I, I, I'm i a big believer that no one's born evil and that we've got to challenge the binary of oppressed and oppressor. We all have the ability to be the oppressed and the oppressor if we're not conscious. We mm. all have that ability. So I think it, it's looking at it with more nuance, but at the same time, we have zero time to waste when it comes to respecting wholeheartedly the interdependency of the human species. Is if, if you are involved in a large inter- institution and you are not doing everything in your capacity to challenge the in- inequalities at the heart of your institution, it literally is going to come and bite you on the bum because we're mm-hmm. all connected. If anything's shown us that the last year with COVID, with rising consciousness about climate change, which is really, unless you're living under a rock, not a debate anymore, like we have to see things as beautifully interdependent and, and not do things by halves. Mm. And I suppose that, that carries with it an obligation. I mean, I mean, you, you mentioned climate change. It's one of the great passion projects for you in terms of the things that that you look at we're off the back of cop 26 where you saw you know i suppose the organized world insider the kind of the glass walls of of the conference location and then you saw the activism on the streets in terms of the demand for change when you look back at that or or indeed when we look back on it in times to come how will we see that cop in terms of the the nature between i i guess the nature between the powerful and those that want to affect change and maybe represent a new type of power in the structure? Mm, I think, you know, everyone who is standing up for those most oppressed, and we see that across the world with indigenous communities who are fighting the destruction of the Amazon, for example, or, you know, at the same time as COP was happening, there were people on the streets, there were environmental refugees dying in the channel and people who were who were, who were supporting, stopping that from happening. So that we've got to zoom out and look at the wider lens. I think how we'll look back on that in, in history is partly farcical 
people because there was a lot of institutions and industries there who weren't there with integrity when it came to genuinely lowering emissions. But there was a lot of incredible people who were putting the message out that we have to have um, adequate change. Mm-hmm. So I, I do believe that I'm, I'm an optimist when it comes to wider change. I think, yes, the time is totally running out on an ecological level. But we still have to continue in and not give up and 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 persevere in the ways that we can. So, so I suppose the optimism and, and positivity has to stay in, in place. Let's move on. Love your biography and love your descriptors. Let's start with what it means to be sex positive and a queer activist. Introduce oh, that. What does it mean to be sex positive and a queer activist? The first, well, first of all, queer is not just about sex. Queer is thinking outside the box of mm. norm and binaries. Queer has had to be reclaimed like a lot of words because in the 80s and 90s there was a lot of queer bashing and, and there still is a lot of queer bashing so queer is about thinking outside the box and challenging the conditioning that we've all received and this relates back to what we were talking about before the fog of cultural amnesia i'm a child i'm a, what's called a section 28 baby between the years of 1988 and 2003 that's when section 28 the law introduced by thatcher which banned the promotion of homosexuality in public institutions was in force so mm. there was a culture of silence around a huge part of my identity so it's dehumanizing and therefore we've got to rehumanize ourselves and our community that parallel is for all oppressed communities if we're looking at, at the incredible movements around Black Lives Matter, etc., etc., for the for the decolonization of education, an actual look at what the British Empire has done. The point is, our queer is thinking outside the box and looking at reparations for what's been done to our communities, community. But when it comes to the specifics of queer and sexuality, I take a lot of pride in the Gay Liberation Fund and other incredible movements who have enabled me to be out and proud and and sexually freer, not mm. entirely. The Gay Liberation Front of the Legends who started Pride in 1972 off the back of the Stonewall Uprisings in 1969. And fast forward, and you look at Pride in London today, and people would think it started in Barclays or Tesco, but it was <laughs> It was by the legends who were born out of the Women's Liberation, the Black Power, and the Gay Liberation movements. But, but uh, I, suppose, I mean, I, I think that's a brilliant way of putting it, because, I mean, you know, y- you would be right in terms of the way when you look at the advertising campaigns and things like that. But there was, I mean, oh, so many directions I want to go in. Let me just, just I'll, I'll throw two. Let's see which one you pick up. First of all, of course, you know, you mentioned 68, 69 as, as years. And, and of course, that was a time of, of great activism. When you look at the whole nature of student activism, political activism, activism and and actually a lot of people compare and contrast today to then i also interviewed joe galliano you might know as a founder of the queer britain campaign and he said that in his words he said look he said you've got to see it that, that queer is the most inclusive word in the lgbtq moniker because of this re- reclamation of language that actually taking something negative and and turning it into a, a positive and i just wanted to get I suppose your reaction to that kind of like the, you know, the, 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 the frothy state of activism that we're living in. I mean, obviously, the, you know, the, the results of 68 and 69 for a lot of people was, well, it didn't lead to anything. You know, things were were very quiet again a few years later. And this 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 issue about language and stories, maybe I'm just going to get, let's take them one at a time. Let's go the state of activism right now in terms of can we really see change coming? And then let's move on to language and stories. I mean, one thing that one of my dear friends once said to me is that 90% of transformation, the efficacy of activism is relational. You know, you have all the high profile protests and demonstrations and 
stuff on the front page of the press, but actually having a cup of tea or going to hospital with your friend who might face a diagnosis or their their mental health support service has been shut down is is vital. Is there is the heart of transformation. So for all those every, every step matters. Every step matters. Mm. And for me, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for people coming to hospital with me when I needed to, or having a cuddle when I thought I was uh, I was alone. These things are, are so important, but we still need to be super uh, militant when it comes to the actions on the ground and the protests that we need to take. For example, the stress that we're facing with the police crime and sentencing bill. We cannot let that get passed. Freedom to process, freedom of expression is vital to everyone, including the dominator's human spirit. So there are parallels between 69 and now. Obviously, people are dying in their droves and the establishment don't care. But on simultaneously, whenever we have a lot of oppression, we have a lot of a resistance. And I'm seeing a lot of incredible, creative, powerful responses coming out from all generations. And I suppose this this got like nervously sort of steps me back into the role of leaders. Because, you know, if you look at the, the late 60s, I and mean, I've just watched the Netflix documentary, Robert Kennedy for president. You had a, a deeply establishment figure in Robert Kennedy as US Attorney General, brother of JFK, who became part of the change. He saw it and he saw he saw the justice, the social justice that could be delivered and became very committed to delivering it. And you know, for a lot of people, that it, it you know, that's the, that's why it cost him his life ultimately. And when you look at the role of leaders in activism, I mean, are they the people that get in the way or are they the people that can be the pathway to change? Both, both. I think you need leadership. Well, personally, there's a permaculture principle that I'm quite inspired by, which is called preparing for redundancy. If I was to get run over by a bus tonight, the movement can still continue. You're constantly enabling and cultivating everyone to collaborate with each other. Also, that one day I might be able to put my feet up and have a sleep. But leadership is also about, you know, it's stopping bad things, obstructing, putting your body on the line, stopping bad things from happening, Mm. creating good things, whether that's alternative education projects, alternative economic projects to the current status quo that we're in. And thirdly, general spiritual consciousness raising. And they all need to be done simultaneously. Um, So you you can, and and, and with reciprocity, you get a lot of, um, you get a lot of unhealthy kind of macho ego where it's like, oh, you're not on the front line enough. You don't know what uh, people are, c- are coming with whether they've got precarious asylum status whether they've got three kids at home so there has to be compassion when it comes to the action that we can take but i will never stop saying that fundamentally it has to be within the ecological social environmental racial harmony that we need when it comes to the state of things i'm i'm, I'm, I'm reading um tony blair's autobiography at the moment he makes an interesting observation that there is a difference in life between a priest and a general in the sense that a good sermon doesn't win a war and he was talking about tony ben and about somebody he admired for his oratory ability but because because he lacked the pragmatism and the deal making and all the things that i suppose people complain about when they think about about tony blair in terms of the kind of, well, did he sell his principles? His argument is, well, to get things done, you've got to be a person of action. I'm just wondering when when you feel so strongly about an issue and you can speak so eloquently, how do you make sure that the 30, 40, 50% of the people you might carry with you in the room becomes enough of a majority that you can get things done? By meeting people where they're at, meeting people where they're at. I'm a big believer in, and this would, I mean, as I said at the beginning of the interview, I don't believe in evil, but Tony Blair strict with me on that. 
and obviously being a young person in 2003, he literally not only was the root cause of murdering hundreds of thousands of people, but sold off a generation in Britain in their belief in integrity and social change. But my point of the question is, meeting people where they're at is essential. Let me go back to what I was saying about my name. There's one movement in Germany, which I'm very inspired by, called Exit Deutschland. And they work with Nazis and neo-Nazis and help them leave the movement. They'll get beaten up, attacked. So when I say meeting people where, where they're at, it's having the compassion that whatever conditioning people are within, whatever the traumas they're living through, and they might be pathologizing them to other people, that they still have the potential for social change. And as things get even more intensified at the moment, as we're seeing the rise of the hostile environment across the world, you know, it is about not is about cultivating and building your community, but meeting people where they're at who are on the other side of the fence as well and having hope that they can change too. And also made to be challenged yourself as well. I mean, I'm going to move on to, to stories, if I may, because, you know, what one reading of what you have been, you know, really successful at is is as as a storyteller. And you get the, I think you get the importance of of language, you know, when, when you think about, I guess this, you know, what you've described as spiritual activism. Um, I think I've, I've read a phrase of, of yours before, is that, the, the prose matter, don't they, in terms of the, the storytelling and where you get the narrative that you can believe in? I uh, thank you. That's really kind. I think one principle I live by is formation starts with yourself. And by the way, I keep like chucking out these principles. I have learned so much from well, where I did my training is a movement called Training for Transformation in South Africa, which is the educational product born out of the Black Consciousness Movement, Steve Biko and others. Mm-hmm. Uh, movement. When we talk about storytelling and telling our own stories, it relates to one of my favourite quotes from Steve Biko, which is, I have a good right. The most potent weapon in the hands of the oppressor is the minds of the oppressed. Mm. The cause of dehumanising structures of violence from Section 28 in Britain that we talked about, from pre-Sexual Offences Act, when there was the partial decriminalisation of of sexuality to apartheid South Africa of white supremacy etc we have to overturn and regurgitate the dehumanizing conditionings we've been forced to believe and storytelling and telling our own stories is essential because that's exactly what the status quo do not want to hear stories of the marginalized, the oppressed, the people who do the oppressed, the people who do not want to just inhabit a victim status. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so interesting. I mean, and and also, you know, I'm just wish we had longer, but I've got the last couple of things I want to wedge in because I think alongside the storytelling, which seems to be a you know a part of your activism, you've also said that a balance between reflection celebration and agitation helps me stay strong and i think that's an interesting trio of emotions and of contemplative states i mean thinking about advice pieces in this last couple of questions it says well how do i do that how do i get this balance between reflection celebration and agitation what, what's the advice you give dan First of all, having a balance between the head, the heart and the hand. As you can tell, I'm a big fan of popular education and and facilitating. I facilitate this in a lot of workshops. So it's the intellectual understanding, the head of what's going on in the world. The heart, how it makes us feel emotionally. How do we respond to things? How does it make us feel? And hand, how we put it into action. Now, the trick is that all needs to be in balance. If you're stuck in the head, you'll just be an armchair activist. If you're stuck in the heart, you won't get out of bed in the morning because it's all too depressing. If you're stuck in the hand, you'll just be knee-jerk and reactionary. And 
And, you know, I've been on demonstrations where the police or the press or whatever, like, why are you here? And you're like, I don't know, I'm just really angry. You need to have a balance between the head, heart and the hand. It's absolutely natural because we to be more present in one of them. We all inhabit the head, heart or hand naturally. I know that I'm much more of a heart person. I'm very emotionally connected to, to a lot of things. But the trick is having them in balance. The mm. intellectual understanding of what's going on in the world, how it makes us feel and how we put it into action. And the action reflection cycle is another concept when it comes to community development. Ideally, you have 50% of your time spent in reflection and 50% time in action. Otherwise, we'll just be throwing ourselves at walls. Sometimes. Mm. I think that's such an interesting you know, thing to consider, your own relationship between the head, heart and the hand and actually what's the driver for you and actually where that can lead to the best and worst versions of yourself, I guess, in terms of how how that might well sort of influence your behavior. Last question. You know, I, I looked at your brilliant lockdown list and I would really encourage listeners to go to it because if you want to find the link between EastEnders, Charles Aznavour and a whole range of other brilliant sort of tips for our uh, for our listeners, you're going to find it on Dan's lockdown list. But you did give us this sort of best tip for life. Speak your truth to power always. Final thought on that. If somebody's read that and thought, yeah, I get it, but... I've got so much to lose. I'm scared of standing out. I don't know what to do to actually do that. What's what's the step you can take if you really relate to that and want to do something about it? Often, and actually for me and for many people, it's it more often than not, is speaking truth to power always to yourself. Because often we are our own worst enemy, right? In, in stopping ourselves believing that, A, we have the capacity for making change. So if you're going to be your own worst enemy, you've got to be your own best friend. And realise that, A, there's so much potential in our current state in the world. And there's been so much incredible human potential that have led us here. And life's short, do it. Mm. Well, what a fantastic advice, please. And you know what? What a great place to leave it, Dan. I mean, and I think the perfect example of what's been said about you, the warmth and the rage, the passion for change. Thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating?